A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And uh, for some reason, I feel the need to flag up that it's quite a specialised subject that we're featuring this week, which is actually always the case. Each time we find a lens through which to look at London, it very often reveals a very particular dimension of life in the city. Maybe I'm slightly self-conscious because uh, it's very much on home territory. For me, we're looking at T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, how it maps onto London, how London and the early 20th century mapped onto the mind of the poet. It's a slightly longer episode than usual. I figured that if this is your cup of tea, then, well, there's no harm in indulging. The other thing to say is that an entirely optional upgrade to your listening experience would be uh, to read the poem The Wasteland before we go a step further. It's 433 lines long. What's that, about 20 minutes of reading time? It'll set you up for what we're talking about. Oh, and it's one of the most amazing pieces of literature the world's produced. There's that. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. serious case of deja vu going on here just a few weeks ago i was on almost this very spot in the shadow cast by the monument getting ready to talk about the monument but this time i'm with tina baxter hi hello and we're not going to be talking about well not directly we're not going to be talking about the monument at all we're heading off from here we're going to use the monument as basically a symbol for the beginning of a walk about the wasteland by t.s Eliot. You're well-known, of course, among Londoners and visitors to London too, the Wasteland. And I suppose we need to set this up, really, from basics. What is the Wasteland? Right. Uh, Thomas Stearns Elliot, born in America. Stearns? I didn't know that. Yes, that's his middle name. Was uh, born in 1888 and died in 1965. He was a very sickly lad, and that gave him lots of opportunity to read Um, amazing literature, lots and lots of books. He then went on to Harvard, where again he seems to have read an awful lot of medieval literature. He studied Greek and Latin and read all the texts, or many texts in those languages. Sanskrit. 
Sanskrit, uh, Pali. He also read French literature and German literature. So an extraordinarily well-read young man and was going to be on the road to becoming a philosopher, more than likely being a professor at Harvard. However, he decided he'd come to Europe and he arrived in Europe in uh, 1914. He met Vivian Haywood, 2015. They got married. And to quote, this produced the frame of mind out of which the wasteland was formed, which you may gather from that was that the marriage did not bode well from the very, very beginning. Turning up in Europe in 1914 is not a particularly smart move. No, it wasn't a particularly smart move. In fact, he did actually go to Paris first and then, because of the situation, decided London might be safer and also he had, he had various other American friends here as well. Unfortunately, he and Vivian, although they were very passionate about one another, they were, I think, more drawn to one another about literature and the poet, and she was quite determined to keep him here. She wanted the poet, not the philosopher. But uh, he also had many people working uh, for him, if you like, to promote him. T.S. Eliot had already had published the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I believe that was in 1917. But The Wasteland appeared, first of all, in literary magazines. Firstly, that was in 1922, in The Dial in the US, and The Criterion in London. And then he was published by the Hogarth Press, uh, that's the, the Wolfs, Virginia Woolf, and her husband's press, in 1923. And, because he felt it was a slightly flimsy book, that he would include the notes... Oh, that's interesting. Yes, because, of course, the thing about uh, the wasteland is that it's really inaccessible, and deliberately so. He's calling on all sorts of literary illusion, isn't he, that uh, only somebody probably who's read to the extent that he has is going to pick up on all this stuff. What help were the notes? Well, the notes were really just a filler, and everyone thought that T.S. Eliot was pulling a bit of a fast one or having a bit of a joke. Or did Ezra Pound put him up to it? It was not normal to the medium to actually include the notes. But Eliot felt that his readers, the type of readers he was hoping would read his poem, were really, really much more involved about how they felt about the poem rather than comprehend it. But out of the notes, of course, came a complete, just a critique on the notes alone. You can actually not even bother to read the poem if you don't want to, because there is so much, it seems there is so much written about the notes on their own. They basically stand alone. And I suppose if we were going to do what he, well, now what's he done? He's conveyed a, a national mood or a, an international mood in his poem using ideas of fracturedness and so forth. So if we were going to replicate that within the podcast, we would need to make sure it's unclear which of us is speaking at any given point. <laughs> do some of it in German, Latin bit in French here and there, Absolutely, finish in yes. Sanskrit. Yes, I do have uh, the, last, the last paragraph, which I think has at least four or five uh, languages in it. And yes, it is very fractured. And the walk that I do is also fractured because to actually create a walk with the same chapter headings in the order of the poem would be virtually impossible. So it actually works very neatly for me too, the fragmentation, which of course, fragmentation basically goes to the epitaph, which is about the sibyls, the prophetic ladies who throw leaves out 
onto the ground with words on which basically don't give you any clue really what's going on. They're all riddles and you really have to make up your own mind and I think that is really very much what the poem is about. Again, it's function over form because he felt that you, the reader, should comprehend it in your own way. You shouldn't really use the notes at all. There was a lot of that going on at the time, of course, with Joyce and, and what have you. Uh, you. You reminded me in what you're saying that we are physically located here in the capital and there is a textual reason for us being here, of course. There is a literary reason for us being here right now, mainly because of where the poem actually begins. We are standing by the monument and if we look at the very top of the monument, there's a great big burning urn. Now, of course, the monument is a is um, in celebration, we might say, of the survival and the rising of the city again out of the flames. But what I'd like to say is the reason why I started here is because of the lines that open the fire sermon. And that is burning, burning, burning. And it seems apt to start it here. And of course, it comes from Buddha or It might not be, of course, it comes from Buddha, but he would have known that this was a mantra used in the Buddhist teachings. And, of course, there's a lot of repetition in the wasteland, meaning a freeing of attachment from the world. And he uses a lot of iteration. There's a lot of repetition. And, again, the poem is often called modernist. It's not a poem of the norm. In fact, it's it's an experimentation as well. There's no really one section or even one uh, stanza that relates to the next one in in terms of how it is actually written. Sometimes there's no punctuation. Sometimes we say things like tweet, tweet, tweet. There's utterances throughout, la, 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 way, way, way. He uses all of these things. And this must have been very, very odd to the reading public of the 1920s. And it's actually quite amazing how many people know a lot of it off by heart as well. Well, let's get moving, shall we? Should we get some perambulation happening? We were thinking of heading down to St Magnus the Martyr to get us started, which, of course, is at the old footings of London Bridge. Well, we've been there a few times. People will obviously, if they come on the walk, they will be they will be joining me in the church but the other element which people don't realise is that uh, Elliot was uh, an American visiting London and he used uh, the Baedeker if I've said that correctly, Baedeker, Baedeker and in it he marked St Magnus the Martyr and St Mary Walnoth what you, I don't know what this word is Well, it's actually, I believe it's um, an old-style tourist guide. B-A-E-D-E-C-K-E-R, Baedeker, it may be the way I'm saying it, but I think people might recognise it. People collect them, apparently. But he would have had one of these in his possession. So what's this, like a a pre-A to Z? It is, yeah. Well, it's a travel guide for Americans in Europe. That's what I would call it. I don't think it was printed here. It may have been but I'm not entirely sure. But his copy had these two churches, if not a few more, marked out. But these are the two churches that are mentioned in the wasteland. And the other element of St Magnus is that on the wall there is actually a memorial for a fire sermon, which again is interesting because um, this is something that he uses in the poem. Actually, section three is called the fire sermon. 
I think that relates to the Buddhist element, but also he would have been aware of this memorial. And I wondered if he thought how interesting it was that there was a connection in his mind between Buddha and this uh, 1640 memorial to a great fire on London Bridge. As you'll have heard, we've flowed downhill to Lower Thames Street. I remember in the poem something about white and gold Hellenic splendour or Ionic splendour. Uh, the Ionic columns. Now, what happened there was... Um, we've got to remember the time we're talking about, of course, as well. We had just come out of a great war and London was most probably not looking anywhere near as clean and tidy as it does today. And uh, the buildings would have been rather dark and dirty and it would have been very foggy. But it would seem that um, the new reverend of St Magnus the Martyr had instigated refurbishment and redecoration of the church. Hence, the decoration within it was actually... It was really pristine. So it was really noticeable. It wasn't a dark, dank church it was beautifully painted and decorated and I would also uh, suggest that um, it was most probably looking very high church. Yeah I've been in there uh, not so long ago and that's exactly how it felt very splendid. Very splendid and lots of incense usually even today and we must also um, or I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that I need to do more exercise. Yes, we've just <laughs> we've just ascended a uh, a Lloyd's Bank style spiral staircase, and we may need to take ten minutes to recover. <laughs> okay. Um, that uh, Elliot's family were. Would you like this oxygen mask? No, it's all right. I'm starting to breathe again now. <laughs> it's um, was uh, you sorry, so therefore they did not believe in predestination or damnation. Who are we talking about? We're now talking about T.S. Eliot's family. Ah. And uh, that was the religion he was brought up with. This obviously played on his mind because eventually he did in fact become... He did get baptised into the Church of England in 1927 and he called himself an Anglican Catholic. So it's kind of a slightly... uh, interesting way of explaining how he felt he most probably did enjoy the splendor of the church yeah i can't quite get my head around this because the 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 wasteland seems to be about uh one of its themes is the withdrawal of god from the public conscience you know the the diminution of there being uh something for everybody to believe in you know everybody's belief was no doubt in tatters after what had just happened after the first world war and it seems to be the fragmenting of belief, the fragmenting of, of, of sort of a common understanding of what what life is all about, that it takes for its theme. So for Eliot then to find God seems remarkable, particularly in so short a time frame. I think with his studies and readings of other religions, who uh, I mean, I'm no expert on these, all the books that he read at all, but my feeling is that these other religions made him think well people believe in a life thereafter so in a way is there hope after death 
and also there's he's you know he's he's often he's often talking about dying and also right through the poem he's talking about the potential there is a potential uh, for hope for rebirth but in the wasteland you find time and time again he just sort of takes it he just kind of slightly slips it away from under you there are a lot a lot of um, examples i mean uh, the phoenician sailor uh, the, with his pearls in his eyes we've also got the phoenician sailor in the tarot cards and she never finds the card that will actually make the the actual reading make any sense of the reading so each time he takes a little bit away from us he never gives gives us the complete picture and my my view my feeling is and other people might have different ones is that he's actually he's not telling you to stop hoping but because of i think the very depressing time that they were in is really you know you've got to be uh, i don't know that there isn't a lot of hope but you've got to find it somewhere. You've got to find mm. this rebirth. There's got, you've got to find it somewhere. But where you're going to find it, he's actually not got the answers. I so, hope that isn't too convoluted. No, no, not at all. He has no answers. There are no answers to the, that. The poem is again representing in its form what he's thinking, so it defies understanding, but it's giving you the sense that there is a, an well, answer to it. The great quote, that the one that people seem to like quite a lot, is uh, Unreal City... Under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. And he's, he's actually looking, um, or has read Charles Baudelaire. The lines that summed up the most significance for him in Baudelaire's work was crowded city, city full of dreams, where in broad daylight the spectre stops the passerby. And they were very similar in their themes. Sex, death, metamorphosis, depression, urban corruption, lost innocence. But that particular piece for me, if you think about it, if you ever look at photographs of 1920s London, of course the photographs are generally black and white. It's very grey, it's very dark. And you could almost think of these people as ghostly as souls, either the soul that they're living, but there's also the souls of the dead, which then, of course, follow them to and fro from work quite a a really dark picture but London Bridge was very important to him as I think the River Thames um, in the poem he was born in St Louis next to a great river and I would imagine that the Thames would have drawn him as well and he talks about water an awful lot as well it's a very watery poem very watery poem about mermen and fishmen and and he also you know he refers to uh, would it the most pleasant of deaths might be by drowning? I mean, how or where he got that idea from, I'm not quite sure. But uh, he does he does bring that into it as well. Just on the subject of the river, we found ourselves on a quite a big balcony outside what seems to be an office building. I guess I'm not sure. Yes, it's Clarkson's. It's Clarkson's old headquarters, and basically we're on um, a great public space, I may add, uh, which joins one of the pedways that actually comes from Pudding Lane. Ped- kept, a pedway. A pedway. Yes, this is one You're of on the path. Well, it's actually a pedway. The City of London created these streets in the sky. I'm sure um, you've heard about them before. In fact, it might be a good podcast for you as well. A a pedcast? A pedcast even, yes. I can't help noticing for a public place, we are literally the only people here. Yes, it's one of the best kept secrets up until today. Hmm. Where does this go? So we're 
we've got this wide open space. It looks very 90s to me, although it also looks damaged and neglected. It's actually a Seafoot building, and I think they're, going, they're not going to knock it down, they're going to refurbish it, and we are hoping that this public space will remain. And uh, you can get what you do is you come up the stairs on uh, Thames Street, and we're now going to go down the stairs again to get onto the Thames Path. Smashing view. I certainly recommend this if you want to take a gander at the Shard and all the glass structures on the blocks surrounding it. And this would be a good place as well. I, I can never remember the name of the thing. It's the Coat and Badge, isn't it? Not the. I always want to call it the Dog and the Dog and Duck. The Dog It Egg and Spoon. That thing. Well, that, yes, that one, the uh, Doggett Coat and Badge, the uh, wonderful ancient rowing race between the young men of, of that great old establishment. But I think it's been and gone this year. Yes. I, haven't, I have to confess I've not seen it, but it's on my diary. But I am herding sheep over London Bridge. Are you really? Yes. <laughs> Is this because you've been given the freedom of the city or because you've just decided? <laughs> I ha- you have to be a freeman of the city, so uh, or, or quick be... and sneaky. <laughs> well, something like that. But um, well, congratulations! I don't know how much you'll see from here, but uh, yes, I'll be there on that last weekend in September, herding my sheep. Fantastic! Have you been working out how you're going to herd the sheep? Have you been reading up on sheep? I have. Uh, I've bought myself in for the two o'clock slot in the hope that they'll be tired. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, that's great, by the way. That's really exciting. <laughs> Off to our left, towards uh, Tower Bridge, we can see not just the Belfast, but another ship as well, which looks considerably more modern. What this is all about? We mu- maybe th- we're being invaded. Maybe it started. <laughs> I don't think so. And they're it very was, bold, whoever they are. It was funny when I came over the bridge. I thought, I bet you asked me what what it is, and I haven't actually got any idea. But uh, no, why, I'm should, sure why that, should you know? We're I'm talking sure about <laughs> wasteland. Sure I'm sure there's 50 guides out there who will know exactly what the U27 is. In fact, I'm sure I can see a Union Jack flying. So have no fear, anybody. We are not being invaded. Well, before I endorse that statement, I mean, this is going to go out in a few days' time. If by that point you can hear the march of jackboots in your street, then uh, don't listen to Tina. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's time now that we go and uh, check out the Phoenician sailors, don't you? Retreat, yes. I'm just going to get my white handkerchief out in case that comes in handy. (laughs) Is it uh, it bad manners to surrender before any attack has been formally declared? I don't know. I think uh, think you just might be... I don't know. I don't think there's any need to surrender at the moment. I'd like and, to anyway. Uh, like to, well, well, we'll get your hanky out and we'll wave <laughs> at the boat just so that they know. Wouldn't it be nice if a, if a serving sailor got his hanky out and waved back? That would be delightful. Yeah, it would, yeah. And we'd, we'd uh, yes, most probably collapse in hysterical laughter, yes. We are going down another one of these spiral staircases. This is taking a beating, really. It does need refurbishment. And we are about to emerge out onto the... Towpath. Thames Path. Sorry, the ped, the, ped, the the Thames Ped function. No, no, the, this is the Thames Path, but we have just been where you can uh, actually. Wrong with the term Pedway, isn't it? No, Pedway is uh, Pedway was the the terminology of those uh, pavements, if you like, or streets in the sky, which were built in the sixties. There's not many left anymore, but um, I think it may be worthy of a podcast because there's people out there who actually do do walks and talks about them. If I was a tour guide who, who realised that a lot of the uh, prime material had already been covered, I might make up a Sir Thomas Pedway who was the originator of the Pedway. Yes, you could do that if you like, but uh, no... Um, do you ever get tempted to just uh, finesse a few details? Uh, 
Uh, no, actually I don't, because um, I think what worries me is I hear so many other people out on the street who are taking people around and they're actually talking, well, quite honestly, an awful lot of rubbish. And it's, it's a real worry, but um, I like to, I suppose maybe it's in my nature, I like to keep it present and correct, but I'm not always right, or sometimes when you, I work on secondary sources, not primary sources, so occasionally you may get some information from somewhere where the date might be wrong or some of the background, so... And I'm always very happy to be corrected or to say to somebody, I'll check it out. But uh, like, like we're doing today, we do make jokes about things and, um, you know, play on words and, and so on. Um, the Wasteland is great because really it's your interpretation, not just mine or the person who's coming on the walk. Oh dear, it looks like they're creating pens for the sheep, do you think? These are your sheep. <laughs> yeah. I think this is for... This looks like uh, for London Fashion Week, if it hasn't already... Uh, well, no, it doesn't. It looks like... <laughs> if you could see this, listener, what we've got is, uh, is turf being laid out. Outside Billingsgate. By the ream. Little picket fences like you'd see on the British Bake Off, some marquees. This looks uh, not like fashion. This looks like sheep. I can see a sign in through the door saying... It looks like wow, and then it's got grass underneath it. Grass. They're selling drugs. No, this is just turf. This is turf. Mm. This is the other. This isn't with no weed, with no weed in it. I better make that a question for legal reasons. Are they selling grass? <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> very clever. They're, they're, very clever. There's nothing improper going on here. Mm. It's got a bit of a, a sheepy smell, though, doesn't it? Well, it's definitely. Uh, I think it's, this is your it's not. It's not astroturf. It's the real thing. I think it's uh, just going to be some huge corporate event. But it would be interesting to guess what it is with all this gr- abundance of grass. Listen, anybody who's tuned in for the wasteland is going to be sore disappointed at this moment. Should yeah. we swerve back? Uh, we're going to just uh, pause here for a moment. Here being on a little being, corner. My, my stop here and what the relevance is is basically the customs house. Um, this version of the customs house was built in the, um, well, should I say, probably built in the late 18th century with 19th century uh, refurbishment and additions. But this is the place where I like to talk about trade and business, or the trade-off, as I call it, and the business of of sex in... um, Sex? Yes, sex in the wasteland. Because oh, in the wasteland. In I the see. wasteland, not. Um, <laughs> well, they built this whole thing for sex. No, no. Uh, but the customs house for me is a marker because uh, Elliot uh, worked for Lloyd's in the foreign and colonial department when it was in uh, Lombard Street. Yeah, and can I just jump on that? Yeah. Given his education, as we've established it so far, how on earth did he end up doing that? He ended up doing that because his wife, Vivian, was always very sick and he always had huge medical bills to pay. So he really needed to have a day job um, to pay the bills. And while, of course, he was working there, he was continuing to write his, as he calls it, his little poem, which became The Wasteland. But um, here I would talk about actually Mr Eugenides the Smyrna merchant with a pocket full of currents CIF London documents at sight asked me in demotic French to luncheon at the Cannon Street Hotel followed by a weekend at the Metropole 
so there we go you see mixing business with pleasure but in fact what all that that is is saying is Smyrna was actually a, a contemporary issue at the time it's now the modern Izmir in Turkey and it was to do with really partition post-war settlement and it would have made an impact on Lloyd's Smyrna being given to the Greeks because it would damage the trade with Turkey and apparently a Mr Eugenides did turn up at Lloyd's and did proposition Mr Elliot <laughs> so um, I think that's that's quite sweet and then we've got uh, that's actually um, mentioned in um, part three the fire sermon and then I move swiftly on to another fragment uh, number four part four death by water uh Phlebas the phoenician so hence i like to be near the water so we get the feeling of this and maybe where some of his thoughts may have come from and again lots of water appears in the wasteland we've also got elizabeth and lester are in a fantastic gilded shell which could be the gloriana that we have seen not so long ago i then swiftly move on to the small house agent's clerk who um, makes an uh, not um, undesired assault on a very bored young woman. And then he often repeats, Sweet Thames, Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. And he refers again in these lines to nymphs, and I think he's talking about the sirens and the prophets, and talking about the young girls on the riverbank cavorting with the heirs of city directors departed and have left no addresses so he's in all that section he's not only talking about his job but also about lust not love and i think that may have been very much part of his original attraction to his wife so really that's where the customs house would be would be brought in let, let um, me let me yeah, uh, yeah. let me ask you i don't know if this is something you want to uh, address or not but elliot and women yes um and, and to some extent elliot elliot and jewish people tend to be particularly uh, hot button topics as far as right. elliot's concerned well i tend not to i tend not to well obviously i do talk about women because there's a lot of women mentioned in it it whether historically or alluded to i tend not to bring up uh i don't tend to discuss the, the his supposed um uh, writings uh being anti-jewish he does mention the seven seven armed candelabra in one of his sections which is basically to do with the interior of the temple at jerusalem um mainly that's to do with opulence women um he had ladies who thought they were going to marry him or he had the loves of his life which nothing really came about and uh, i tend not to dwell on vivian's uh, supposed well she was abandoned by him i don't think you could really call it anything else but he was not the one who committed her to the sanatorium that was her family that actually did that but he never actually divorced her and i don't really know if he supported her very much in any in any way but um, that could also be his perhaps his anglican catholic element that he felt as long as she lived that he would remain married to her and then he went on to marry valerie his secretary vivian died and he then married valerie his secretary um, and he seemed to have if i dare say it lived happily ever after thereafter and recently poems have come to light very erotic and passionate poetry about their time together so in one sense i do end on 
when we end the walk, I do bring that in. Um, I don't deny that he treated Vivian not very kindly, but I like to leave on a high note to say that he, in fact, did find happiness and his poetry thereafter, the erotic poetry, actually shows that, that he could write in a completely different way. And it is, some of his writing really is very physical, very tender. When you look at a picture of the yes, fellow, you wouldn't yeah. think it. No, you wouldn't. And also when he reads it himself, he, he really seems to just read it in a monotone. <laughs> and then when you hear Alec Guinness read it, or Fiona Shaw, who does an absolutely brilliant version, which brings alive all those monologue and dialogues and all that sort of sweeping elegance and then that sort of almost misery as well, she really brings that to life. Shall we go to St Dunstan's in the East? Oh, I'd, lo- I'd love nothing better. It may be um, a place that you haven't visited before and your listeners might be interested in it. Let's find out. Well, I mean, we're not going to find out if the listeners are interested. No. Right now. <laughs> let's, let's live in hope. So we're off the, the um, Thames Ped Path. Thames the, Path? The Thames Ped Road. <laughs> and, we're, and we're walking down an alley ped between... The large brown brick wall and the large brown brick building. We're just walking down the side of Billingsgate and heading towards... um, I never can quite get them right, whether we're at Lower or Upper Thames Street. I haven't ever quite got my mind around that, but I do know where I'm going. We're coming into a canyon of office buildings. So, on, on balance... And uh, maybe it's an unfair moment in the discussion to to ask you, but do you like Elliot? I I think if I if I well I actually hadn't realised that I was actually alive when he did his readings or still did readings. I would have certainly gone to hear him. I'm not sure if I would have actually liked him. In a, I doubt if I'd have ever moved in his circles. But um, I think. It would be difficult until you actually met him face to face because there are also some uh, interesting elements of his character which um, I would have liked to have experienced. Mm. And uh, as we get towards the end of the walk, I will uh, share that. I will share that with you. So we come from the roaring, roaring dual carriageway in cycle lanes into uh, the quiet the quiet of St Dunstan which is a ruin oh yes I see what we're looking at and if you misunderstand what that sign is hanging off it looks like it's a premier inn as well well it has a very symbolic moon on it which I think is quite uh, is quite nice but we shall get that out of our sight line shortly there's one of the walls there with uh, gothic arches and Lots of foliage overhanging. It's bordering on jungle. And then the clock tower. What an interesting name this bit of roadway has. It's Idle Lane, I-D-O-L, next to a church. Yes. It's uh, Idle Lane. Idle Lane. Which, uh, in fact, on my last walk, somebody asked me is that to do with idolatry and I looked it up and it's actually suggested that it was a street where idlers would hang out 
Not pe- pe- idle people rather than idols. Wrong spelling. It's most probably a very ancient medieval way of spelling it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was that you finessing a fact by any chance? No, no, seriously, I checked it. It, it could be idlers. It's, uh, you know, these street names have not changed over hundreds and hundreds of years and you have to forgive their spelling. But um, here we are in the heart of what was St Dunstan's in the East, which was, um, I'm afraid, it's like most of Wren's churches. It was destroyed in the Great Fire, rebuilt by Sir Christopher Wren, and then, unfortunately, in World War II, got um, a direct hit, certainly on the nave of the church. And like several other churches in the city, it was left to be a beautiful garden for the enjoyment. But um, oh, it, is, it actually is a beautiful it garden. It is a very beautiful garden, and we'll just go in a little bit further. A lot of tropical plants going on. I uh, use this site basically as my... Um, what people might not be aware of is that the wasteland, the actual title, comes from... Uh, it's likely comes from Mort Dartha and uh, written by uh, Thomas Mallory in 1417. But also in Mort Dartha is, of course, the quest for the Holy Grail, which when we were on looking at London Bridge and on the on the Pedway balcony, you were talking about, you know, this despair and lack of hope. And the wasteland could be actually seen a similar quest as the Holy Grail. It's a philosophical, even a psychological quest for for some answers. And he has used this, in the you know, being in the wasteland, going through the wasteland, this hopeless quest for the Holy Grail. And it comes up again in the tarot cards as well with the lady with the lady holding the grail, but in front of her is water and the knight can't get to her. And, you know, is this just illusion? Is, you know, are, are these just something that's going on in your head? But this place, for me, is three things. It's uh, in the poem. It's the Chapel Perilous of the Holy Grail. It's the Garden of Gethsemane, which is also mentioned. And he also talks a lot about the decay of Eastern Europe, upheaval after World War I. And, uh, in fact, when I was last here, it was 32 degrees and very, very sunny. But today, when it's grey and dark, it actually has quite an eerie, an eerie feeling. And in that same section in um, number five, What the Thunder Said, there is an extraordinary piece of writing which has no punctuation and considerable repetition um, at the beginning, at the end of lines, and it talks about water, whether the water is actually there or not. And here, of course, we have the trickling of a fountain too. So it really, really is atmospheric, and I will just... um, I won't read too much, but this is how it is on these grey days... And bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings and crawled head downward down a blackened wall. And upside down in air were towers tolling reminiscent bells that kept the hours and voices singing out of empty cisterns and exhausted walls. And I just think that just fits so absolutely beautifully here. Yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other things going on here. He had also read... Shackleton's book or account of his adventures if you like in the Antarctic and um, when, it, when he was writing he was always, they were always talking about that there seems to be an extra person in their group when they did a head count there was always seemed to be the presence of someone else 
this kind of sort of mirage of a person. And he also, in the poem, relates to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where there is a third man with them who is unrecognised. And he's talking about, again, I think that goes back to our, let's get the word right, spectres, these, no, sceptres. I always get this wrong. Scepters is the one. The scepter is the one you hold in your hand. If a yes. Mr. Ma- Mrs. Malaprop, I'm C- sorry. Scepter is what you beat somebody to death with. All right, fine. Uh, Good. And the scepter is, is what they are afterwards. This, yeah. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fine. Okay, thank you. That will, that will help me a lot. I'm sorry if I've, I've ruined the moment there. But um, that's why, why we stop here. And it really is very atmospheric. And I think it's most probably uh, my, my favorite stop. I could stop here for a while. It's very, rest- it's very, very restful. Very, restful. It's absolutely beautiful. I should explain the water feature at the centre of this is like a millstone with mm-hmm. water burbling up from the middle. And it, it makes me realise just how it is that there's a restful quality to the wasteland because in the midst of all that fragmentation and, and doom and lamentation there's also a sort of a serenity isn't there there are moments of yes great great serenity or certainly of of great thoughtfulness of if you like allowing yourself to let your mind drift and and to go elsewhere and what better link for us to go elsewhere yes we shall we shall go elsewhere yes and um, i'm going elsewhere now (laughs) let's go and join the idlers in idle lane I'm never, I'm never considered idle. I'm never still, or I'm always up to something. <laughs> but um, I'd like to draw your attention to Idle Lane, again one of those fabulous bendy, windy little medieval streets that people, you know, people miss. But I'm always fascinated by who has gone before us. 
and I'm sure um, Geoffrey Chaucer has most probably walked down here. I'm not sure if T.S. Eliot did, because he doesn't actually mention having visited the church. But the other reason why he was interested in churches because the government had planned to demolish about 15 churches in the city. And St. Mary Walworth and St. Magnus the Martyr were two of those churches. And he did actually write in one of the literary journals that, uh, and I'm just going to paraphrase, that um, it would be an absolute shame to remove these ancient ancient edifices who, which actually gave people so much peace and quiet and place of contemplation um, after they had walked or were working within very you know the blackened the blackened buildings of of uh, finance so um well talking of which we have <laughs> just rounded the corner and we're looking up a, a little i mean i've never really seen it like this i've never come no. at the uh, walkie-talkie from this angle we yeah. can see the cheese grater over the back there and this thing is looming over us. It, we, it we're under its looming side. It almost feels like it's almost going to slightly sway, sway over us. And of course, the other day it was it was quite funny because everyone was asking me, "Oh, is that the building that cook the that you cook a fried egg and that melt the melt the Mercedes?" That's right, you can fry a Ferrari. Yeah, you fry yeah. a Ferrari. And of course, now what we see is it has its actual shuttering, which it should have had in uh, what do you call it? Brise soleil, uh, soleil brise. It's some wonderful French term meaning. Venetian blinds, I think. If and, it was, uh, if it was sideways, you could throw a stake on there. Well, yes, yes. Well, in fact, it wasn't on the building. It was actually the reflection from the glass of the building onto the pavement on East Cheap that you could actually fry. Apparently, the, uh, the barbers, also his windows and his um, all the metal fixtures and fittings on the door began to bow and um, start start to do have a strange reaction so <laughs> they had decided not to use them and then of course what they ended up doing was spending apparently twice if not three times more money actually having them reinstated now i remember i've forgotten this about walks with you there's a tiny little alleyway here and uh, naturally enough we're rabbiting off down it six to seven st marriott hill it says church entrance and away we go now, to our left, there's a, a shoulder-height wall. We can see a little paved area there, and there's some benches that you could sit around and have your lunch. Nobody's doing that right now, though it's lunchtime. And we make a, a right-angled turn into what looks Saint like a Mary, church. St. Mary at Hill. It's uh, known as the... Uh, well, actually, it's known as the uh, Fishmonger's Church because it was so close to Billingsgate. But, in fact, the wall that um, Quentin's just talked about is... Uh, in fact, where the raised churchyard would have been. Of course, now all the bodies, the bodies left London a long, long time ago. They were removed by the Victorians and dispersed and, and buried elsewhere. Ah, so if you're running out of space to bury people, make your graveyard higher. Absolutely, and that's why in the end... Shelving, effectively. Which it is shelving, but then there was this problem of seepage, which became rather rather um yes it was became just a huge health hazard now here it would be inappropriate to talk about tarot cards within the church itself but i like to use this area because again it's it's off the beaten track it's quieter and uh, we meet madame sosostris who people may not be aware that um uh well it would make sense actually he might be interested in the occult as well 
And it was very, very fashionable in the 1920s to go to mediums and to get in touch with your your loved ones or find out answers from, you know, mad uh, um, Uncle Henry where he'd left his fortune. And I find that quite interesting because of his, his actual religion that he was brought up in, which basically denied uh, damnation or predestination or that there may be a life after that Elliot was actually... Um, T.S. Eliot was actually quite interested in it. Yeah, but um, doesn't that make a lot of sense in a way? You know, you've, ju- you've just come through the war. Everybody's yeah. belief has been shaken up. None of the institutions work. And so everybody's casting around for something to believe in. Absolutely. You know, that belief and, didn't work. Let's try this. And, and I think it's a lovely section. It's in The Burial of the Dead. And if, if people are having a hard time reading the poem, perhaps on their first um, meeting with it, they suddenly think, oh, this is, this is quite interesting. This is actually like part of a play. And she's a famous clairvoyant and has a bad cold, the wisest woman in Europe. And this is one of, I have to say, a favourite line, with a wicked pack of cards. So this word wicked was in the language in American English, certainly in the 1920s. It's not a word that is just, um, I understand the youth of today use the word wicked, meaning something great or fantastic. And that always tickles me pink, really. Yeah, right, there it is, yeah. transitioning. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or it comes back, it's made, a, it's made a, a, a reappearance. And she talks about Phoenician sailors, Belladonna, the Lady of the Rocks, which is referring to the lady at Chapel Perilous with the Holy Grail. They talk about uh, the one-eyed merchant, and I always thought, well, the merchant, Mr. Eugenides, he never mentioned he had only one eye. But, of course, what it is, it's very descriptive. It's talking about the card, which is actually in profile. So it means that it's it's actually a profile. It actually has nothing to do that he, he had actually lost an eye. But it's interesting that he then refers to the pearls that were the eyes of the Phoenician sailor. So, again, is it talking about eyes and all-seeing. But then, of course, Madame Sosostris cannot give us any answers because, for one, she's missing a certain card, the hanged man. Because, interestingly enough, the hanged man is not about death necessarily, but actually about rebirth and renewal. And it's missing from the pack. It's missing from her pack. So, again, he's... Elliot has not allowed us to have a complete, you know, a complete picture of this. We'll move on. We can actually walk through the church and out into Lovett Lane. Not what I was expecting. Not, in fact, a large central nave, but a bit of a back room with a winding wooden stair plaques on the walls dedicated to various people who've come and gone across marble flags and we turn to our left and see really a very spacious worship area kind of functional actually I mean some of the trimmings and trappings are extravagant but the building itself is quite modest um, that's most probably because not only did this poor church also suffer in the Great Fire, but in 1988, it, well, yeah, there was a Great Fire in here, and all the apparently some of the best examples of very old pews were all burnt down. 
quite a lot of the Reredos was saved and they're currently raising money to uh, recreate that. But it is now used as a very, a truly functional space. They have lots of musical afternoons. They use it for exhibiting paintings. And I think they're actually quite reluctant to restore the ancient order of seating because, of course, what you have, you can actually get more people in. And, uh, but it is a very, very fine church, and you'll notice it's very minimal stained glass, very much as Christopher Wren would have expected his churches to be kept because he did not like stained glass windows. Mm. I didn't know he that. did not design well, them. Why not? I'm not sure. I think maybe he would have found them a bit too fussy and, and fastidious, whereas he liked to have these beautiful balanced lines with his pillars and his domes and his... Well, it's just... Yeah, very classical. And actually, we've taken a couple of steps in, and I was saying that it's quite plain, but actually, if you look up, there's all the art in here. It's Mm -hmm. got some great detailing on the the domes and the arches, and um, the word escapes me right now as well, but we've got some very fine columns. It's just, as always, with anything really to do with Wren, it's just beautifully designed. Yeah, I think I'm revising my view, actually, as we come further in and look behind us we can see a piece of furniture that divides the entry hall from the main hall and built into that is the most impressive set of organ pipes oh and a a royal crest here it's been uh, the, the carving here is just out of this world we've got the crowned lion and the unicorn there still not quite happy with the name mary at hill though it seems like it's missing a word um, it's because it's on a hill, as you see when we when we leave. Hmm. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like them to change it to St Mary on the Hill. Well, it would have been the way they spoke in in those days. Would they? Yes, they wouldn't have said Mary, St Mary on the Hill. They would have said St Mary at the Hill. So, as in, I'll meet you at Pedway. No, that because Pedway is a very modern term. We wouldn't, <laughs> speaking. we wouldn't have been speaking like that. You know, so uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to just take some back routes to get us towards uh, King William Street, which features in um, in T. S. Eliot. It's a hell of a street to guide on, so I normally um, take my group down to another, as you say, down another little winding street, St. Clement's Alley, and then we go on to St. Mary Walnut. So I'd like to suggest what we'll do is we'll aim for St. Mary Walnut. And uh, we can talk about that church, which also appeared in that travel book that he had. He marked up the section. And also because he worked right next door. What was the name of that guidebook that you were talking about as well? We need to find out more. Well, I I see. I see. It may be Baedeker, but it's Baedeker. uh, Listener, if you know anything about this Baedeker, Baedeker business... Can you get in touch? I'd like to find out more about that. Maybe we'll investigate a little bit further. By the way, just while we're acknowledging, a big thank you to those who've been in touch in respect of getting the history of the cab trade podcast up and running. It's happening where all systems go. I'll thank individuals on the show itself, but particular thanks to Liam who got in touch and offered his services. And it's going to be happening in a week or two. Meanwhile, you mentioned that there was a street that was... A swine for for guiding. What what makes a street difficult? Well, what makes the street difficult, sorry, for guiding is in fact the noise, which I'm sure people you will be picking that up now. How suddenly from the quiet of a a very little known churchyard uh, or the interior of a very quiet church, you come out into the hub and bub of the city 
if I wanted to guide on King William Street, one, it's there is not really any good place for us to stand or and do the stop without being in the way of people going to and from lunch or from work. Do you think they're going for lunch or work? <laughs> work, one would hope. <laughs> um, and also, we've got fire engines. We've normally got a helicopter. But this is a major junction. It comes, of course, directly from London Bridge down to King William Street. So we're going to go underground briefly. It's the easiest way to cross the road. And do notice these rather splendid old signs down the subway, which uh, mention Grace Church Street and King William Street. They look kind of thirties, doesn't they? Look, they look thirties to me, yes, with the typeface. But it, they're, they're just so elegant. Around the corner we go. Good thing about Bank Stroke Monument Station is it's, it's so big and sprawling that you can basically you go anywhere in London by choosing the correct exit. Yeah, yes, as I long as you got, choose the correct exit. It's got a Heathrow exit, hasn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure. I believe, that. I believe that's true. Well, uh, what, you can you can walk all the way to Heathrow. Yes, I think so. <laughs> They've got I a travelator, you know. I wouldn't like to do that, but uh, I know uh, it's a good way to get a lot of people across. So we're just going to head for King William Street. In William Street, really, the pavement, if you say, you know, what is required, really, for, for guiding. I personally wouldn't like to have a group of 24 people gathered on here while I talked about this, this street sign. So I tend to take them to Clements Lane into yet another, yet another churchyard. We can just go and have a look. So we're at St Clements Church. Well, I didn't catch any of that. (laughs) (laughs) She's off. I'm off, I'm off. Um, We are just walking past St. Clement's. Well, look at that. Which, of course, is a very uh, famous church because of the nursery rhyme, Oranges and Lemons. And well, so the bells no, no, of Saint Clement's. Controversy creeping in here. Well, you can, but there's like about twenty versions of that. Thank goodness, there's only one version of the wasteland. Thank goodness, there's um, only one Saint Clement's. Otherwise, it'll get very confusing. It eh? would. It would. The amount of Saint Boltoffs and Saint Marys that we have, but it's also currently used as an office uh, for a charity. Well, I'm um, lo- the bit I'm looking at uh, now doesn't look anything like an office. Uh, uh, if you just come up the steps, if you're able. Yes. What I can see is an ex- extremely uh, impressive gilt altarpiece. Um, what's what's a four-parted triptych? Uh, well, no, it is a triptych. It's, it's basically, you'd call it a, uh, as far as I'm aware, you'd call it a rarados in a church. But oh. it is it it definitely is in a triptych form, and it looks like it's got some interesting saints, and I'm sure one of them will be Saint Clement's. But as you can see, if you look in, it's very beautifully designed as um, an office. And I believe it's most probably the Amos Trust, which is emblazoned on the uh, door. And I do believe services still continue here. Was that Amos Trust was one of those uh, men who was inspired by Sir Thomas Pedway, wasn't it? Um, actually, I've never heard of Sir Thomas Pedway. Oh, well, you, you look him up. <laughs> but you may like to know about... Uh, there'll, be, there'll be something on Wikipedia by the time Obradovich, we get back. an eminent sermon man of letters, first minister of education. You see, you couldn't make that up, could you, really? 
Here lived in 1784 Dositje Obradovic, 1742 to 1811, eminent Serbian man of letters, first minister of education in Serbia. I did look him up. He's um, a very, very highly educated chap. He he never really got into any much trouble of any kind, but um, he's... <laughs> So it makes him slightly. There's not really an awful lot of stories to tell, but he is interesting. I really, I really feel like that's the that should be the second line of everybody's biography. What the, the headline? What they did. Second line: how much trouble they got into. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, isn't that what people are interested in? All the all the smutty bits. And yes, we St Clement's Court is where I normally uh, lead my group because, as you can immediately hear. It's much quieter than uh, King William's. And it's, a, and it's a dodgy alleyway, so it has the, the backs to flourish. With yet another churchyard yes. at the end of it. So be careful going down the curb. And uh, we'll go on to St. Mary Walnoff. I'd like to just get to Queen Victoria Street, which is at Bank, because that's that side of T.S. Eliot's character that I'd like to share with with you and the listeners. So I think you all might be slightly, maybe not amazed, but definitely amused. Could we be amazed if we feel like it? You can be amazed if you want to. I'm ready to be amazed. You're ready. That's that's excellent. I like that. Can I just tell you about that, actually? I think about this with other sort of performance-related things, situations where you're hoping to wow somebody. Yeah. with a fact or a display of something. Is there an element of preparation that you use? Do you tend to sort of undersell things and, and let the things you're pointing at well, speak for themselves or do you, it's, do you it's big in, them up? Well, it's interesting about wow factors because when you think you have a wow factor, it's not always everybody else's wow factor or they've all been there, done it and got the T-shirt. What is interesting is the way actually sometimes walks develop purely with the group that you're with. Like if you're with a small private group, there are all sorts of things that make them laugh, which actually you you yourself would never have actually thought was funny, but they just see it or feel it from another perspective. Like you making jokes about the pedways, you find that really amusing. But there was somebody actually created that. Do you know how small name. I feel now? <laughs> you don't have to feel small, but but I think honestly, you think you can have a corking cracking joke and it goes as fast as a pancake and then you say something that you think is quite serious and everyone's you know kind of find it really quite amusing or unbelievable so you create a walk really and just take it take it out and you know enjoy it with the group and sometimes it can be quite serious or other times people will find just be amused by certain elements of it St Mary Walnoth Oh, here we are. So we're rounding the corner, curved wrought iron uh, fencing and gates here, very impressive gold detail. And then we come into the... And a lovely cafe. Into Well, now, this is a smart use for a church foyer, a proper Seattle-style coffee corner. These ladies give many, many a refreshing cup of coffee to many guides as we, we traipse in and out and up and down the steps. This sounds like a not-so-subtle angling for a cup of coffee. No, no, not at all.
see what I mean? You see what I mean? What can happen to one when one is guiding? We now have a gentleman playing a rather beautiful... I think it's a polka, isn't it? But um, it's a bit dark. But here is a famous mechanical clock. We're looking at uh, what, what amounts to a six-foot block of glass within which is a contraption, uh, big cogs and gears. Yes, which is the workings of a clock. And on, the, on it is actually written Unreal City, uh, a, big, a large section of the wasteland. So what is this? What's the significance of it? Well, it is. It's uh, the workings of a clock, and I have a feeling it's the workings of most probably the 1920s clock that used to sound the dull sound of nine, uh, which would have been very pertinent to Elliot because, of course, he was just working across the road. Again, I will point that out to you when we when we go. But um, it's it's really lovely that it's actually, this poem is actually commemorated mm. here. It's time. It's and, time. Uh, of course, this is a very famous church because of Wilberforce... Also, an Elizabethan playwright was buried here, which Elliot would have known about. His surname is Kidd, K-Y-D, and um, he wrote a play about a very murderous deed, in fact, two murderous deeds, and he brings that into the poem at the very, very end, the name of the character, Hieronymus. And, yes, we've got John Newton as well. So we know, we know Elliot definitely spent time here, maybe. I'm not sure if he had a packed lunch, but he would have come here for a bit of a break from his uh, Smyrna merchants and uh, the various other people he had to deal with. I don't know why it didn't occur to me, because it's been all around us as we've been walking. We haven't really commented on it, but we've been passing on all sides, city folk having late lunches mm-hmm. and uh, sh- shoving bim and bap takeaway food into their faces yep. of course Elliot would have been mixed up with that crowd he would he would have I mean it may have been slightly different I doubt if there'd been that much takeaway going on less bim and bap I suspect Le- less bim and bap and I think the wife would have made you pack lunch and uh, there would have been lots and lots of I mean even when I arrived in London in the 70s there were still hundreds of cafes offering you a three course lunch for for a pound you know and you'd have your Yes, and they were all steamed up and everybody smoked. It was quite, uh, it's kind of like, yeah, like an old movie, really. Yeah. Where, where are you from then? I'm originally uh, from up north, but I travelled with my parents. What, Watford? No, um, much further Milton than Keynes? that. No, Wigan. Wigan, as in Lancashire. I'll have to look that up on, a, on a globe. Up. It's a bit too far out for you, I know that. But uh, yes, they would have the places would have there been loads of loads of little cafes, and no doubt there would have also at Lloyd's been a canteen, I would imagine as well. well just just while we're passing and t- talking about uh, all points of the compass, East Ham. I know nothing about East Ham. It, it's an absolute delight, you know. You should definitely go. Oh, right. okay. I'll make yeah. I'll make the effort. Okay. A bit of a non sequitur, I realise. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to redress uh, a grievance. If it's you, you know who I'm talking about. That's the sort of thing that can happen to a guide. The other interesting thing is when you have a little group of drunken gentlemen sitting on a bench and you're trying to uh, give your your little uh, spot. You only ever do that once because uh, a lot of them are very bright and right up there and also... uh, They've got a lot to say sometimes. What did they say? I can't remember now, but it was it was funny. In fact, I just couldn't continue anymore because, because uh, you know, 
they, just some of the comments they made. No, no, tell me, were they were they participating in the in the giving of the information? Well, actually, can't even quite remember where it was, but they would uh, offer they would also offer information about the history of history of the site as well. Right. Which was usually from a completely different place or even country. So uh, <laughs> you know, it, and and it was it was funny. It was funny. It really gave everyone a laugh. But I decided to abandon it and. Uh, move on uh, elsewhere so now when I see see gentlemen these these ladies and gentlemen enjoying themselves uh, on the benches around with their tinnies or cannies or whatever they call them I tend to give them a nod and, and move on Run. because they they can't you know they can't resist chirping in sometimes I, I would like to tie together the idea that we've just heard with that of uh, somebody who was on the show a couple of weeks ago you may remember John Day, who was talking about a school of art in which the idea was to superimpose a map of another city altogether on top of the London topography. Uh, what about a tour in which you point out the delights of another city altogether whilst touring London? I think that would be. I think that would be really funny. Actually, I think that would be really amusing. We need to find the right because if you're not a finesse, well, then this could, isn't going to work for you. You is could it? kid everyone that the shard was the uh, Eiffel Tower, couldn't you? Really, <laughs> and you could also bring in a bit of Berlin and uh, Prague. I mean, some of these buildings, I think you could suggest Prague is a very beautiful city, but we also have some pretty good buildings, and you could uh, look, uh, show people um, the Royal Exchange as the Arc de Triomphe. Um, I th- yeah, I think it could work. And then we've got number one poultry, which you could use the arcades and pretend you're in Bologna. And of course, it was where Chicken Run was filmed well, as well. Yeah, well, all of those things. But um... uh, well, if you listener, if you decide to go ahead with that idea, uh, I'll take fifteen percent. <laughs> uh, I think five for tip, maybe seven and a half. Well, I think a little bit more. I'll be charging per head for the tour, of course. <laughs> but I just want to point out before we move on is that famous clock. And that building that is opposite in Lombard Street is where T.S. Eliot worked. He was there from 1917 to 1925 when he went on to work for Faber and Faber. And uh, often in those days you would also work on a Saturday. So, uh, so now we're going to just go off towards our last, last port of call, Queen Victoria Street. I also mentioned during the walk the relationship with Ezra Pound, who... Um, he was Elliot, Elliot's editor, wasn't he? Well, he was Elliot's friend, mentor and editor. And he always used a blue pen, a blue crayon or a blue pen. And uh, it would seem that Elliot actually ended up with 33, 33 pages... And finally, I believe the wasteland was brought, well, knocked into shape with 19. And uh, it seems was very influential in actually, uh, it's often referred to as cinematic effects. Uh, some of the writing, he, he cut down some of his perhaps more elegant prose, shortened it so it became far more either like a photograph or like a, a, piece, a piece for the cinema. Also, of course, um, the particularly the Elizabeth and Leicester section always reminds me of Sally Potter's Sally Potter's Orlando, or should I say Virginia Woolf's book Orlando, which was made into a film by Sally Potter. Um, the Wasteland, I don't know about you, but it actually conjures up pictures for me. It actually... Uh, and then the other... Which is ironic, because I gather that Elliot 
really didn't like cinema, apart from Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And yes, he did, he did like Buster Keaton, I understand. But he did love theatre, though. So he did love creating... Um, well, obviously, we've got... We've got dialogue and monologue that goes on throughout throughout the poem. Yes, it's it's there all the time. Even I think um, dialogue with you, with you, the reader. Even that's sort of how I feel. He's talking to you sometimes, or he might be musing. But there's also, in terms of that, if you you were saying about his relationship, perhaps with his wife, there is a section where she talks about how bad her nerves are. And she's definitely speaking to herself, I think. Or as she says to him, you know, like, basically, are you listening to me? She goes, my nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think. You know, this sounds to me sort of feels a bit like an... An aggrieved woman who her her partner or her boyfriend is not paying attention. Again, I would normally go, uh, we're at the top of Queen Victoria Street, and um, he mentions mentions that as well in the fire sermon. And it's interesting, we've just left some music behind us. This music crept by me upon the waters and along the strand up Queen Victoria Street. Oh, city... City I can sometimes hear beside a public bar in Lower Thames Street, the pleasant whining of a mandolin. He had taken up the mandolin, apparently. But it's interesting, there are no more public bars in Lower Thames Street. It's just a, basically a dual carriageway. And he brings the meaning of Strand in Queen Victoria Street. Queen Victoria Street was quite a new street at the time, whereas the Strand is ancient. The Strand was the ancient beach where the the Anglo-Saxons had set up Londonwick. So he's constantly also referring back to the ancient city and and the new city. But I'd like to end, really, on that that little section which I I discovered when I have, while reading several of the books about him, that um, in his everyday life, he liked to mimic. He liked to mimic other people's speech. And... uh, that's where we uh, where we get that wonderful section where we have and I'll do my best when Neil's husband got demobbed I said I didn't mince my words I said to her myself hurry up please it's time now Albert's coming back make yourself a bit smart he'll want to know what you've done with the money he gave you to get yourself some teeth he did I was there you have them all out, Lil, and get a nice set. He said, I swear I can't bear to look at you. You can you can hear the Wigan coming through there. Yeah, well, yeah. a bit, bit of that. Um, <laughs> and uh, he loved mimicry, and a friend described him as a company of actors in one suit. And he found his own voice by producing those of others. Is there not something extremely scary about the man as learned as T.S. Eliot mimicking your voice? Um, I think uh, when where they lived in Crawford Mansions, no, three, I think it was three Kensington Court Garden and Crawford Mansions, uh, they lived very close to a pub. 
So when they had the windows open in the hot summer evenings, they would hear... T.S. Eliot hanging out the window. Well, I certainly... Mimicking. I have visions of Vivian (laughs) and Eliot sitting in chairs opposite the window and having a jolly good laugh. I mean, today, of course, this is not appropriate... Um, and I'm not even sure it was appropriate then. But it gives me one little picture of them as having an absolute... Excuse me, having a really good laugh together. Laughing at how common people speak. Well, perhaps that was it. But they, they but it's the conversation as well. I mean, you know, you've got to have all your... Te- In those days, it was actually apparently quite fashionable to have all your teeth out and have a pair of dentures. This was, this was the new thing, you know. And also, of course, remember, after a war, everyone was very uh, lacking in calcium. And I think most people, once they'd had, the ladies particularly, when they'd had a few babies, they uh, started losing their teeth. So I think it's really quite... We're, we're actually just at the sort of penultimate end of the walk, as it would be if we were walking it. We actually end it at St Augustine's Tower. I feel a lot like we were walking it. Well, we were walking, I was but I meant, I meant as in uh, doing the walk proper. Oh, I see. Doing it proper-like. Yes. Doing it proper-like. Doing the full Dixie, you know? Have you, thought and, about, um, have you thought about branding your walks, you know, in order to increase public awareness by getting everybody who's on the walk to walk in a particular way, like your own signature Tina Baxter walk? Okay. Right. Um, I believe uh, that, that people already do that. They already actually what, what, do that. What is the method of walking? Well... I'm, I'm thinking like John Cleese style. Well... You know? That could be very tiring over a long distance, don't you think? What would you go for then? Sort of a, a bit of a bob as they shuffle along? I think... Um, for the whole group to, to bob in unison? Well, I think the other one is, a yeah, like a policeman, mm-hmm. sort of the policeman bob. I think what would be more interesting is when you actually stop the group to actually get them to mimic whatever you were doing, a bit like follow the leader. You know, or, do, or, or mimic some people who are talking in a nearby pub. Well, absolutely, picking up on a picking up on another conversation, uh, especially phone conversations these days, can be very interesting as you as you go past them. I think actually nowadays we do actually mimic people on the telephone. On oh, shall I say telephone uh, on the mobile? Excuse me, it's a bit old fashioned. You know, you hear people talking about their medical condition or their love affairs on the train, and you think sometimes you think, oh my god, I wish they'd stop. Or other times you just sit there and and Generally, I'm completely amused or by. Sort of slow down so you can write it. Yes, so or slow down, down, or can I record it? Or could you say your? Could you actually say your credit card number again so I can? <laughs> can I make a note of it, please? I have heard but somebody do that. It, it, it is done. People give out. People do not realise how much information they give out. So hence, living above a pub or very close to a pub. But um, it seems that he mimicked all sorts of people, and he most probably that's why he liked Buster Keaton. Well, who's to say he didn't mimic him too? But I like people to think that there, there was a very amusing and chilled side of our Mr. Elliot, as well as a very, very serious, scholarly, um, academic man. And, you know, he went on to write some amazing plays. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. He got married and lived happily ever after with his, his uh, beautiful secretary, um, who, after his death, looked after everything for him. So, uh, you know, took care of his work. Yes, Elliot, polylinguist, lover, parrot. Mimic. Mimic. Yep. Very impressive. Uh, should we, you're talking about giving out information. I think it's high time we gave out some of yours. OK, fine. Um, bank the, deta- starting with bank details. Starting with bank details. I can't remember them. I always have to write <laughs> them down, so please don't rob me because they're written in secret code in my address book. But anyway, uh, what's happening is 
I will be doing a special walk on the 26th of September uh, for T.S. Eliot's birthday. Um, don't ask me which one. I think it could be his 99th birthday because we sh- actually know 98th birthday because there'll be a big celebration in uh, 2018. And also the walk can be booked at footprintsoflondon.com. So, and I'll also be doing the walks again, two of them in October, again on the same site, footprintsoflondon.com, uh, for the Footprints Literary Festival. Tina Baxter, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure. My heart That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Tina Baxter. Thanks to to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Ed Quentin Wolfe.